Who is heroic to you? Let, let, me, let me put it this way. Who is someone you think worthy of imitation? Someone it would be good to model one's life after? It's a, really, it's a really important question. Think about it because we naturally, in fact, we do this even unconsciously, we imitate the people that we see as heroic. So let me hear from some volunteers. Raise your hand. When I call on you, tell us someone that you think is worthy of imitation. Somebody worthy of imitation. Who do you, who do you think is worthy of imitation? Yes. Fred Rogers, very nice. Welcome to the neighborhood. That's right, very good. I had to take off my slippers. Yes, over here. Yeah, who you got? I couldn't hear. I'm sorry. Let me do one up here. Yes, who you got? Her. Very nice. That's true, actually. I agree. I want to be like Grace when I grow up. That's so true. Uh, somebody over here. Come on, Peanut Gallery. Don't let me down. What about this side over here? Somebody. Who's something? Yes. Your dad. That was, and he's not even sitting by you. That was really good. That was cool. All right. Those are all, thank you. Those are wonderful. Now, remember, people naturally imitate their heroes. It, it is a fundamental fact of life. When we choose role models, we, we want to learn all about them. We even start to act like them. We do the things they do. That's why it is so important to select great heroes. And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. We're, we're in a series on Philippians right now, and today we come to chapter 2, verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says this, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus. As we summarize in the notes uh, in your worship guide, you got a, a bulletin when you came in, open up that worship guide, look on the left-hand side, you'll see the note summary. Paul shows us that Jesus is the ultimate hero, so we should be like him. Now, as always, context is key. Look, look up at verses 1 and 2 of Philippians 2 so that we can, uh, we can get the context of what we just read in verse 5. 1 and 2 say, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, and focusing on one goal. There are two quatrains listed there of massive importance. I'd like you to look at them side by side. The believer in Jesus has all those things listed in verse 1. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your Easter basket is full. Here's, here's the things that fill your Easter basket. Encouragement in Christ. You have that forever. Consolation of love. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. And you have God's affection and mercy. And by the way, don't be thrown by the if you saw there at the beginning of verse 1. It, in, in the Koine Greek in which it was written, that's a first-class condition all that means is that it doesn't translate into English well, where we don't have those kind of things. It's a sense, not an if. It's, it's an if, but it, it's an if that means something that's sure. These are your sure blessings if you're a believer in Jesus. Therefore, verse 2 says, think the same way, have the same love, share the same feelings, focus on one goal. Now, in verse 5 that we read, Paul takes that last one, focus on one goal, and he quite literally fleshes it out for us. From verse 5 on, he's going to flesh this out. It, it begins with a really powerful poem about the ultimate hero. By the way, this, uh, this poem in verses 5 through 11, some scholars think that this was one of the very earliest Christian hymns ever written and that Paul copied it in. Now, whether that's true or he wrote something new, either way, it expresses God's point. And the point is, focus on one goal. Verse 2. Make your attitude that of Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus should be our focus. When people look to him, study him, they emulate him. You ever wonder about the superhero phenomenon? The whole superhero phenomenon, by the way, I got, I got to interrupt and tell you something fascinating. 
There's a, there's a boy here, wonderful young man here, who's now in high school, but since he was, he's grown up in this church, and since he was in, in uh, elementary school, early elementary school, every year he has brought me an Easter bunny for Christmas. Every year I go into my office and there's an Easter bunny, a chocolate bunny. This year, he had no idea of what I was speaking, right? Nobody did. Didn't know I was going to talk about superheroes at all. Look at the bunny he picked out for me this year. The hero Easter bunny. Is that awesome? It's really cool. It says, wow, you can be a hero every day. Isn't that great? The heroic Easter bunny. No, it's mine. I mean, I'll, okay, I'll share, but after third hour, because I don't want that. I mean, it's kind of sad to see the superhero with nothing left. All right. Okay, everything about the superhero phenomenon, I mean, every, every civilization has had its heroes. Most badly flawed, some truly noble, but the idea of a superhero, that's rare in most cultures. And yet the modern Western world is absolutely loaded down with superheroes. Not since, not since classical Greece with the demigods of classical Greece has there ever been a culture that had such a wide pantheon of superheroes as we do now. It seems likely, and I think this is true, it seems likely that superheroes only became popular because 21st century and 20th century Western society has become almost as pagan as classical Greece. That's why superheroes are such a big deal. We've lost touch with the real and only superhero, Jesus. So we've had to make up some fakes. Now, nothing against our fictional superheroes. They can be fine. But Philippians 2 is designed to reintroduce us to the ultimate hero so we can focus on him and become more like him. So let's read verses 6 through 8. Let's go to the, to the beautiful poem. Verses 6 through 8 of chapter 2. Who, meaning Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself, assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus sacrificed to save others. So we should be other-centered. There's a really important word there in verse 7. This is one of the most significant and technical terms ever written in any language, in any paper. One of the most important words. The, the term is kino'o. Kino'o is your fancy word for the day. Boys and girls, you get to, you get to learn kino'o. On the count of three, you get to say kino'o. One, two, three. Kino'o, which kind of sounds Hawaiian, but it's not. Um, the earliest use I can find of kino'o anywhere is in a play, an early play by Aeschylus, the, the great classical Greek uh, playwright. Kino'o describes someone who willingly submits. It's somebody who empties himself or herself of power, prestige, or position. Now, here's what's most fascinating. Kino'o is not a positive term in that play I found by Aeschylus. In fact, it's not in any of the uses by the classical Greek writers. Like most humans, Aeschylus and his Dionysian audience, they believe that people are best when people have more, right? More stuff, more power, more taking advantage of every opportunity to increase my own stature and my own status. That was the expected focus. So when somebody self-emptied, it was considered a weird, absurd thing to Aeschylus and the other Greeks. But then along comes Jesus, and look what he does. He turns the whole world upside down. For Jesus, self-emptying is the ultimate positive. This is an earth-shattering shift. Think of it like this. Imagine a definitive study that determined that Easter candy is good for you. Wouldn't that be astonishing? By the way, that looks really good. Um, that's the shock. That shock, Easter candy is good for you. That's what we're supposed to feel when kino'o is used here. 
Suddenly people are shown that surrender and submission to God's plan, that's the path of true greatness. There's a Dutch scholar uh, named Albrecht Oepke, and, and he shared a great insight on this. In fact, I liked it so much I put it in your notes. Oepke uh, said, what is meant is the heavenly Christ did not selfishly exploit his divine form and mode of being, but by his own decision emptied himself of it or laid it by, taking the form of a servant by becoming man. The essence remains, the mode of being changes, a genuine sacrifice. 2 Corinthians gives a perfect summary. Read with me, please. You take the underlying text, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Amen. That is the kenosis of Messiah Jesus. Christ's unimaginable sacrifice was giving up all of his prestige and power to become a poor human. Further, he obeyed God's plan to the letter by sacrificing himself on a cross. That's how Jesus makes us rich. We who trust him as Savior are made perfect before God the Father because we are put in him. Jesus the Son paid for our sin, and his righteousness is applied to each of us, to every single person who believes in him. All God's people said... I tell you what, let's pause right here for just a moment and respond to that, shall we? Pray, pray with me. Let's pray together. God, I pray for anyone who is studying with me this morning that has never believed in Jesus, never trusted him. I beg you to draw them to you right now. Friend, there is no time like Easter to respond to the truth of the resurrection. Look, you, you, you are poor. In, in spirit, you are poor spiritually. You are a sinner, just like me, just like every other person on this planet. But God loves you so much that God the Son, kino'o, he, he emptied himself and died on a Roman cross. Of his choice, no one took his life from him. He gave it up so that he, the only one who could, would pay for your sin, a perfect sacrifice. And then, oh my goodness, then he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead so that you know that you could follow him in everlasting life. Trust him. You cannot earn your own way to heaven. You must believe on Jesus. Trust him right now as your Savior. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand, please. Everybody else is still praying. Just raise your hand, look up at me. Good. Amen. Father, I thank you for these who are believers in Jesus. And I ask you to encourage and exhort us through your word. All God's people said, amen. Now, having made that application to the non-Christians, I know, I know what's in your head. Many of you Christians are thinking to yourself in, in that uh, Peppa Pig voice that you like to use, wow, this Easter only the non-Christians get convicted, right? I'm off the hook. Not so fast, Peppa. Verses six through eight are not given to us to merely describe Jesus so that people can believe. I mean, that's great. But the point, remember the point, remember verse 5. The point is that we follow him. We have this focus. Believers are meant to live like Jesus. And obviously, this is transculture time and place. Living like Jesus doesn't mean we carry around odd Messiah complexes. It doesn't mean we wander around in robes or that we go into synagogues and turn over tables and, and use whips. That's not the point. Focusing on Jesus means we are other-centered that we sacrifice for others instead of exploiting for self. Kino'o. But that's not what you and I are like most of the time. You ever thought about this? 
It, it, are, is anybody else amazed at how incredibly thin-skinned and self-focused we are these days? We are amazingly thin-skinned, incredibly self-focused. Here's what's happened. Having culturally taken our focus off of Jesus, we're actually, we're back to the old definition of kino'o. That's how people think. And I'm not just talking about people out there. I'm talking about us. This is how we think. We think submission and service and sacrifice, those are bad things. Look, it's not just people out there. Church people are thin-skinned and self-focused as well. We are. Here's proof. Okay, you want proof? Any Sunday, any random Sunday, just go to some church and walk in and sit down in somebody else's normal seat. Seriously, we are very quick to anger and reaction, which is hilarious when compared with our Lord Jesus. He's God, and yet he counted it all joy to become God's bond slave for needed, needy humanity. Now, God doesn't need us to be another Messiah. Jesus is more than enough, but we're to have his mindset, his attitude of serving others. So what can we do to better live like that? By God's gracious empowerment, what should we do differently? Let's just choose three arenas of life. Let's start on the tollway. <laughs> what can you do to be more like the ultimate superhero Jesus when you're on the tollway? Somebody raise your hand. What's something that you could do to be, to be different? Yes. Let him merge. Let him merge. <laughs> Everybody around you just moved away from you like, oh, man. I don't know. Yeah, what do you got? Use your blinker. <laughs> but that would assume people will let you merge. I'm sorry, yeah. That's right. I guess it all works together. Anybody else? What else can you do on the tollway that would be more like Jesus? Yeah, don't honk. Okay, that's, a good, well, that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to honk. All right, let's switch. What about at work? What can we do to imitate Jesus? Focus on him, imitate his attitude at work. What can we do differently at work? Raise your hand. Tell me. What's something? What can you do? Yeah, go ahead. Stop talking smack about all your employers. Very good. <laughs> Stop uh, scatologically putting people down as you, uh, <laughs> as you stand at the water cooler. I think that's what she said. Yes. Um, yeah, that's good. What else you got? Love your supervisor. Very nice. And you're not a supervisor. That was really kind of you. Well done. I was impressed. Normally, you only get that from supervisors. You know, love us. Nobody loves us. That's true. What else? What can you do at work? Yeah. Serve those that work for you. Yeah. Self-emptying. You're serving the people that are, that are there to work for you. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, and you are a supervisor. That's very nice. All right. How about one last place? How about in the family? What can we specifically do to be more other-centered, more kinao in our family? Raise your hand. What do you got? What can we do? Not you, of course. You're perfect. But other people, <laughs> what could they do to be more other-centered at home? What do you got? Yes. Listen well. I couldn't hear you. I'd already moved on to the next point, but I think that's what you said. That's really nice. Yes. Who else? What do you got? Yes. Love unconditionally. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't mean that, that we lower the bar or we excuse, call sin, call wrong things sin, but we can love people even as we speak truth, at least in theory. That happens. Yes. Otherwise, it wouldn't be in Ephesians. Very good. What else? What can we do at home? Give me one more. Come on, peanut gallery. You're letting me down again. Yeah, what do you got? Oh, he said do your chores without complaining. You know, being a certified male, I got to tell you, we're, we're particularly bad about this. You know, 
I've got like one or two jobs in the whole house, and I want the world to know what I'm doing. I'm taking out the garbage. Look at me. Don't you wish you were as humble as I was taking out the garbage? They could run up a little band. I wouldn't feel bad at all. Yeah, yeah. Without grumbling, without fanfare. Thank you. All right, let's read the rest of our poem, verses 9 through 11. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is exalted. You see this headline on the right side of your notes. Um, Jesus is exalted, so act in his name. Jesus is exalted. He is resurrected from the dead. In a word... All right, here you go. Here's your chance again. In a word, he is risen. Indeed, he is. And the resurrected Jesus is highly exalted as a result of his sacrifice and defeat of death. This was the triune God's plan all along. Highly exalted is a cool Greek compound word, huperipso'o. It's a term for exaltation beyond any norm. It is a magnitude of elevation beyond comprehension. Um, Let's think of it like this. Ten years ago, a little over ten years ago, a member of our church finished a big project he was working on. He built the Embassy Suites Hotel in Frisco, Texas. The tallest building in our town at that time was 122 feet high. Towered over our cityscape for a number of years. Now, in recent years, there have been a whole lot more things that have been built and built and built, like the Sky House Frisco Station, which is uh, right here. It's under construction right now. That's the one where the cars, the flying cars, are going to go downtown and back. True story. I'm not making it up. True story. That is the plan. <laughs> I can't wait. That's so cool. Um, but the Sky House Frisco Station, it's over 300 feet high. Look at how much higher it is than the Embassy Suites. Wow. Big change. But it's still within a level of comprehension. So how about we compare it to what is right now the tallest building in the world, which is the Burj in Dubai, right? The Burj Khalifa is over 2,000 feet tall. The Burj is Hoop Arib So'o. It's just unimaginably taller than anything we can compare it with here. And such is Jesus. He humbled himself to rescue humans, and then he conquered death, and now he is highly exalted by orders of magnitude beyond the highest human comprehension. And those who believe in Jesus are called to be his ambassadors. The the text says that all the world will eventually recognize Jesus for who he is, the God-man who purchased salvation for lowly humans. And there's other scriptures that make it clear that we, we, who are blessed to already bow before Jesus, we should be actively sharing his good news. Here's how Paul put the idea in 2 Corinthians. He said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All God's people said, We are ambassadors. We represent a heavenly country and king. Now, Christian, think this through. Think. I've only had a few friends that have worked at the State Department, but they have told me that this is a fair summary. There are three kinds of ambassadors, and really only three kinds of ambassadors. Big category. One is the ambassador who discredits his or her country, embarrasses the home country by how they act, and they get called back home for acting foolishly. Happens more often than you would think. Hmm, not good. Second kind of ambassador is one who refuses to take his or her post. I didn't know this was a thing, but it happens. Somebody will be, be given an ambassadorship, put in a position, they don't like it, whatever, for whatever reason, they just they don't go. Third kind of ambassador is one who willingly goes and assiduously acts in the name of their king and or country, right? 
Those are the three options for ambassadors. Which are you? Which are you, Christian? Are you, are you embarrassing heaven by how you act, by how you live? Are you, are you refuse, do you refuse to share about Jesus? Do you, just, do you just live as somebody who keeps their relationship with Christ secret? Or are you willingly acting as an ambassador in his name? After all, Jesus worked, so we should work. Look at verse 12, verse 12. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, Paul writes from prison in Rome, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Stop there. You notice this is no longer written as poetry. The, the hymn is over now, and Paul concludes his thoughts on, on the whole big idea. The big idea is the, the way to focus on one goal, to become ever more like Jesus. And God inspires a phrase here that has unnecessarily vexed some readers. Some see this phrase, especially in our language, work out your salvation, and they assume that means earn your salvation. It's like there's a great old Rob Portlock cartoon where the Pharisees have just rejected Jesus' offer. Jesus has offered uh, salvation by God's grace through faith. And the Pharisees say, we get our salvation the old-fashioned way. We earn it, right? No, no, it doesn't work that way, even if you are with E.F. Hutton. That is funny, but it's wrong. Work out your own salvation does not mean that a human somehow does the impossible and earns his or her way to the holy, perfect God. Soterion, that, that's the word we translate salvation here. Soterion can be one of five things, and it all depends on the context. Look, here's a hint. Whenever you're reading the New Testament and you bump into the word salvation, sometimes even saved or saved, uh, it, it's almost always the word soterion. And it can mean one of five things, and it's always really clear from the context. Here are the five things. It can mean physical or emotional deliverance. It not anything to do with spiritual salvation. It's, a, it's an earthly, temporal thing. By the way, in Philippians 1.19, uh, Paul used soterion, and that's exactly what he meant. It was used in that sense. The second possibility, B, is justification. Now, it's a fancy word, but it's a legal term, a forensic term that the Apostle Paul borrowed and, and used a lot, and it just means to be declared right, to be made right before God. Now, no human can do that on their own, but by God's grace, those who trust in Jesus through faith are made right. It traces all the way back to Abraham. It's a really cool concept. Uh, you believe in God is credited as righteousness. C, the third possibility is sanctification. That's the process of becoming more holy, more like Jesus. It's a process. Uh, sanctification. D, when you see soterion, is glorification. Now that can mean a number of different things, but they all have to do with the end of the age. A lot of times glorification, when you see salvation, it's used in a glorification sense. It's talking about the fact that we're going to have creature-perfect bodies. Oh, Lord, I can't wait. And, um, and it sometimes it's talking about rewards, judgment. You know, everybody who believes in Jesus, they, they will be before the bema, the judgment seat of Christ, to receive or not receive rewards for eternity. The fifth option, E, is B through D as a collective process. It could be justification, sanctification, and glorification all together. So you just look at the context, and it means one of those five things. All right, so look at our context. Context, as always, solves nearly every problem. So what has the context been all about? What's it been about? Imitating whom? Who's it been about imitating? Jesus, becoming like the superhero Jesus. That was the point of focus in verse 2. It's the point of the hymn in verses 5 through 11. So what's the reasonable conclusion? The correct interpretation is work out your salvation means what, everybody? C, sanctification, right? That, it's, it's the only thing that makes sense. 
work hard to become like Jesus, living out all that he has done and is doing for you. That's why the New Living Translation renders it this way. I really like this. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. My old acquaintance Perry Brown had a great statement on this. I put this in your notes too. Perry said this, when considered in its context, Philippians 2.12 is transformed from an awkward interpretive problem into a wise and sobering challenge. If we do not kneel, this is really good, listen. If we do not kneel to serve one another like Jesus, we will have a difficult time standing before the world. Close quote. Jesus worked hard. He did not work to earn justification that he didn't need. Jesus worked hard to serve people. So, if the context is Christians becoming like Jesus, then what should we do to work out our salvation? We work as servants of people. In the days before ride-sharing, uh, I one time had a flight that was diverted. Huge thunderstorms popping up all around the part of the country I was flying to. Tornadoes, all kinds of stuff. Poor pilot. Worked so hard trying to get us through and finally had to announce we're, we have to divert. We're going to a whole different airport. The tiny little airport where we landed uh, was an entire United States state away from where I needed to be. And we're not talking Rhode Island or Delaware here. These are, these are real states. Um, <laughs> Oh, sorry. Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry. Actually, my publisher's in Rhode Island. Don't, let's not copy this hour. Anyway, um, the, the, here, here's, here's how I'll tell you. We, we landed at, at uh, 10 p.m. All right, we landed at 10 p.m. that little airport. At 9 a.m. the next morning, I had to be in the other place teaching. I had to start teaching at 9 a.m. It's 10 p.m. I've got over a six-hour drive facing me. I go to where I've made a reservation. I walk up to the Alamo rental car hoping that they'll transfer the reservation from where it was supposed to be to this little airport where I was. And the guy smiled, and he said, sure, we can do that. But, he sadly said, we're all out of cars. There have been so many flights diverted here that we, we are, we're cleaned out. And my head just fell. And he asked, and I told him my story, and he said, hey, wait a minute, I got an idea. And he logged out of his computer, and he, and he closed down his computer. He said, here, come with me. And we walked around, and he took me through the back. Ooh, it's so cool back there. So we to the back, and we went to the back of the Hertz booth, and he knocked on the door at the back of the Hertz booth. And some guy said, what? Who's there? He said, hey, Jimmy, it's me. Open up. And this bedraggled guy opened up, and, uh, and he said, what do you need? He said, have you still got that Lincoln Town car that that lady said she didn't want because it was too big? And he said, yeah, it's the only car we have. He said, don't give it away. This guy really needs it. And he said, okay, it's yours. And, and here's the best part of the story. As I was gushing with gratitude on the poor Alamo guy, whose name, by the way, I never learned. I know Jimmy, but I, don't, I never learned the other guy's name. As I was just thanking him profusely, I couldn't believe I got a car. He said the most fascinating thing. Here's what he said. Man, that's nothing compared to what Jesus does for me every day. That's a brother who gets it, right? He gets it. He didn't have to do any of that for me. He did it because he's a believer in Jesus, and he knows that he should work like our Lord worked. And we needn't try and do that work on our own power. Please listen. We mustn't try to live out our service on our own strength. Read the very last verse in our thoughts section here. Verse 13. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. 
It is God working in you. The principle in our notes reads this way. Jesus was enabled by his triunity, so we also should work by God's power. Remember, Jesus exists in triunity with the Father and the Spirit. God, the, the Son, Father, and Spirit. Even in his kenosis, even in his self-emptying, Jesus was still empowered by God, and that is exactly how we must be empowered as well. Remember, remember how the classical Greeks thought kinoo, that was a bad term, kinoo is a bad term, because to them, self-emptying was absurd because life's all about the individual. It's all about my power, my acquisitions. Jesus turns all that on its head. No one is as powerful as he. No one is. He's the real superhero. And he emptied himself precisely so there would be room for fulfillment by God the Spirit. Same must be true for us. Look, when we focus on Jesus, we realize that self-emptying, self-emptying is not becoming an empty shell. It's actually just making room for the Spirit of God. A buddy of mine recently bought a Tesla car, a Tesla. It is so weird. It's so weird. You look under the hood, and there is all this space where an engine is supposed to be. It's incredible. But that space is precisely why this guy's car can go from 0 to 60 in 3.2 seconds. I know. <laughs> it was so fun. It's really cool. But as cool as that is, it's paltry in comparison to what the Christian has as a power source. Who's our power source, everybody? Who is it? It's God. God himself powers us, says verse 13. You know, Tesla batteries eventually fail. <laughs> in fact, with what's going on with the SEC, the, the Tesla company may not last long enough until this gets on the radio. Um, but God's power is limitless, and he is eternal. We desire to, and we are able to, work out his good purpose because of what he puts in. We can work out because of what he puts in. Amen? All right, let's close with two big applications. One for us as individuals, another for us as a, uh, as a church. As individual Christians, here's our focus. Our focus is to be imitating Christ. Verse 2, verse 5. And this is how it's to be lived out. Here's how you live like the superhero. You trust Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. You serve other people. You represent the Lord as his ambassador. Work at it. And you do so by God's power for his purpose. Amen? Trust Jesus. Serve other people. Represent the Lord. Work at it. And do so by God's power and for his purpose. Now, as a collective body of believers, God's pleasure and purpose, I think, are summarized pretty well in our church mission statement. Look, look at our mission statement. Here's what we are. This is Frisco Bible. It's what we are, what we do, who we are, what we do, how we do it, and why. We are a redeemed community doing the Great Commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Here, you answer the questions. Ready? Who are we, everybody? We are... That's right. What do we do? We do? How? How is that done? By the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God. Why? Why is it all done? For the glory of God, just as verse 13 said. You know, anyone and everyone can and should learn those truths. For example, I want to show you that anybody can learn this. I have a very precocious friend. He is three years old. Austin is three. He was up here just the other day with his dad uh, for a meeting, and Austin was looking at the wall of our church where the mission statement is written, and his dad caught this on camera. T take a look and listen to Austin. Can you read that, please? We are deep. We are deep. Uh-huh. During the Great Commission, the of the Holy Spirit, Oh, that's right. Very 
good. That's awesome. Oh, I want to now, yeah, give him a hand. That was great. The rest of my life, I want to say it as redeemed community. That's awesome. This is how one lives like the superhero Jesus. You do all for the purpose and pleasure and glory of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself, for my brothers and sisters. I thank you for our chance to worship here together. And I pray that we will, you know, oh, we will, we will be like Jesus in service and self-sacrifice. Lord, thank you for the offering that we're about to take. It's such a beautiful picture of what, of what we're talking about. When I, when I give this money that I think of as mine, <laughs> when I give to you what you have so richly put in me, it's a blessing. It is the path to imitating Christ. It is greatness. And I pray that we can give with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.